Good morning, church. Morning. How's everybody doing today? Good? Good? I'm glad you're here. I hope you're glad to be here too. You know, we're on this journey to the cross. That's the series that we started last week and will take us in through Easter. So if you're just joining us on that journey, we're so glad that you're here. And if you're here for the first time or the first time in a while, um, we're especially glad that you are here with us today. We've been expecting you and we're glad that you're here. If you were here last week, you know that we talked about the parable of the great banquet, and we had a table set up here, and we talked about this big idea that empty seats in spirit-filled churches break the heart of God. And I asked you to fill those seats, and then as a staff, uh, we, we mixed them up a little bit. We rearranged the seats. We actually added some seats because we were so confident that you were going to be inviting people now through Easter, and that we were going to fill the seats that we brought out. So I'm sure somebody moved your seat and uh, you had to reorient, like, where are we going to sit now? Oh, my gosh. And, and maybe you've got a fresh perspective um, as you worship today, and sometimes that can be a really good thing. So I'll challenge you from time to time, if you always sit over here, to go sit over there, and if you always sit back there, to come sit down here and mix it up, and you'll meet some people when you do that, and you'll experience a different perspective. I got used to always sitting on the front row and uh, always worshiping from down there. And then one time I had the weekend off and I came with my family. I thought, I don't have to sit down there. I'm going to sit back here. And I sat back there and it was a totally different experience watching hands go up and watching people engage in worship that had always been behind me before. So I'd encourage you to do the same. Uh, but as we continue our journey to the cross, um, we're going to look at a story today. And maybe you saw the sermon title or it's on the screen behind me here in a second. Um, we're titling this The Rich Young Slave. Now, how many of you have heard the story of The Rich Young Slave? Or maybe you heard the story of the rich young ruler, and you're more uh, familiar with that. And it's a little play on words that'll make a little bit more sense um, as we get a little farther along here. But uh, this is often presented as a stewardship message, and I decided to go a little different because I see other things in the passage. And a lot of pastors will get up because Jesus, in the, in the extended teaching here, he talks about... Uh, about our stewardship. He talks about how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God and, and so forth. We're going to stop a little short because there's another message uh, present in the text, and there's something I want to share with you that is broader than stewardship. Uh, but on the subject of stewardship, I just want to celebrate one more time uh, the offering that we mentioned last week. It's actually grown. Uh, the offering that we uh, gave to Pastor Keith and Sandra Nash as they prepare to go back to Nepal um, they were seeking a hundred audio Bibles that were in the Nepal language uh, of the New Testament uh, to give to pastors and, and workers there, and uh, that would have been about $3,400, but we saw actually over $9,000 now come in in that offering, and go ahead and clap about that, but keep your clappers ready, okay, because I learned this week that the excess funds uh, are going to probably provide the lion's share of converting and, and uh, translating the Old Testament into the Nepal language. So that means hundreds of thousands of believers are going to have access to the Old Testament of God's Word for the first time because of Linwood Church in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. That's exciting stuff. So let's praise God for that. Amen. 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 So. Thank you uh, for giving generously to that, and it's amazing to see what God is going to do in and through that. So we send you with our blessings as you go here in the next month or so uh, to Nepal. I want you to open your Bibles to Luke 18, if you would. Uh, we said we'd stay in the Gospel of Luke, and I encourage you to start reading the Gospel of Luke, and I've seen some people uh, comment on that or indicate that they had done that, and that's great. We can all be reading God's Word together. Whatever else you're reading, keep reading 
that, but if you could read a chapter of Luke a day, uh, you'll start to see God's Word come alive as you study particular passages and then see the broader context of Luke's Gospel. So we're going to be in Luke 18 today, and we're going to start on verse 18. I'll, I'll, I'll just set up a little bit of context. Jesus is making his journey to Jerusalem from the northern part of, of Galilee down south to Jerusalem, and as he goes, Luke records teachings and parables and interactions that Jesus has along the way. And the, the interaction that he has with the rich young ruler or the rich young slave uh, that we are going to study today is just one such interaction. So if you don't have a Bible with you, we keep those in the seats in front of you. There should be one close by. You can pick that up. Go to page 1629. I'd love for you to follow along. Or if you have a digital device or your own Bible, your own copy of God's Word, follow along with me in Luke 18. Starting with verse 18, a certain ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered, no one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not give false testimony, honor your father and mother. All these I have kept since I was a boy, he said. And when Jesus heard this, he said to him, you still lack one thing. Sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. And when he heard this, he became very sad, because he was a man of great wealth. Now this is a, one of, of many stories that actually appears in multiple Gospels. You can find it in the Gospel of Matthew as well as the Gospel of Mark. It's in Matthew's Gospel, in, in Matthew 19, that we find out he was young. And that's where we often refer to him as the rich young ruler because he had maybe excelled and had, had wowed the people and, and set himself apart from his peer group and was given authority and given influence at an early age. And when we are told that he's a ruler, it's probably a synagogue ruler. He was probably um, ruling from a synagogue, from a place of, of authority. And the synagogue in, in, in ancient Judaism was the center of the community. It wasn't a place just to occasionally go to. It was, it was the center of the community, the hub of the community. So he had influence, and we know that from the last verse that we read that he had wealth, that he was a person of means, that he was materially wealthy, that he had influence. And so, you know, as a pastor, I'll just be honest, he looks like a great new church member. He looks like the kind of guy you would want to join your church. Or if you're Jesus, and from a human perspective, you've got this movement that you're launching in the world. This is the guy you want on your team. He's got resources. He's got, he's got influence. He's got the ability to lead people and to speak with authority. Yet we find out that he wasn't a rich young ruler at all. That he was a rich young slave. And that's why we titled the message the way that we did. Because he didn't just have a lot of stuff. His stuff had him. And there's an important difference between the two. Though he was morally and materially wealthy, by all accounts, he was spiritually poor. And this, if I'm just honest with you, can be the state that we find ourselves in here in America. We can look good on the outside and be morally upright, and we can have a lot of resources, but we can still be spiritually poor. And there's a world that is hungering and thirsting for something real, something more. And we see this in his question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He wants to know, at least he's asking the question, maybe he's asking this question for show, and he's saying, you know, my people are watching, I better, I better ask the question, I better ask a good question of this leader. 
And Jesus' response, Luke records five of the commandments, but all would have been implied. All, they kind of go together. And he's citing from the Ten Commandments. And so it's interesting when the, the rich young ruler responds, all these I have kept. I find that a really interesting uh, insight into him. He's saying, well, since I was a little boy, I've kept every single one of them. It's almost like you put an asterisk on what Jesus just said. No one is good except God himself. Why are you calling me good? No one's good except God himself. Paul said it a little differently in Romans 3.23. He said, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And that's why we need a Savior. And if we're not careful, we can put a little asterisk on those verses and say, well, all of those people have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. I've kept all the commandments since my youth. Which sort of indicates maybe the root of some spiritual pride. And his question and his responses indicate that this rich young slave thought that Christianity was something he could add to his life. That, that Christianity was something he could add to his Judaism. That it would fit inside somehow. And if we're not careful, we start to think that our relationship with Jesus or our, our Christianity is something that we can fit in our lives. You know, like a little more cream in your coffee or a great new friend or if you own a business, the perfect hire. Something to make everything a little bit better to, to fit it inside. But the reality is that Christianity is not something that you add to your life. No, there's no room in your life to add Christianity. It's a new life. Paul said, behold, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. The new has come. And Jesus was coming to bring a new order, a new way of being, not just to add a little bit more to the Judaism of the day. In fact, when he says the kingdom of heaven is near, that word that we translate as kingdom is a Greek word, basilia, and it means order of authority or dominion or royal power, not just political designation or geographical designation, but a whole new way of life. So you don't add Christianity to your life. You don't carve out a little compartment. Okay, I'm, I'm going to fit Christianity. I'm going to fit Jesus in here. It's a new life. It's a new way of being. And it's, in fact, it's not something you do at all. He says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Well, Jesus' response makes it very clear. You see, religion says do, 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 do more, try harder, do more, try harder. And maybe someday you'll be pleasing to God. And this guy thought he had done enough. But the relationship that Jesus invites us into says done. It's been done for you. In fact, you can't do it yourself. You can't do enough to earn God's favor. It's been done for you. It was nailed to the cross. You receive it as a gift, and you begin a relationship. Not a religion, a relationship with Jesus Christ that manifests itself in a number of different ways. But it's not about doing more and trying harder. It's not about doing it all. It's about being. It's about being in relationship. If you think about your most important relationships... You do things differently because of those relationships. But those relationships are not what you do. They are who you are. And the best relationships you have, the healthiest, most life-giving relationships you have, are when you and the other person can be together in fellowship and union. And that's what Jesus invites us into. He says, oh, you, you keep all the commandments. His response is, is kind, but it's, it's also convicting. You keep all the commandments? Well, in his mind, I think Jesus is saying, well, let's start with the first one. You know the first of the Ten Commandments, you shall have no other gods before me? And he zeroes right in on this rich young slave's false God, the God that he had put before him. Read this in verse 22 with me. We'll have it on the screen as well. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, you still lack one thing. Sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. 
You see, he revealed that this person's wealth, this person's material possessions, this person's money was his false god. It was the thing he valued most. It was the thing he needed to feel fulfilled. And if he lost that, he wouldn't be able to go on. That's why we read in verse 23, when he, when the rich young slave heard this, he became very sad because he was a man of, God, of great wealth. And so one of the application questions today is, what's your false God? What's, what's the thing that, that you feel you need to have, either apart from or in addition to Jesus, to have the rich and satisfying life he came for you to have? What's your false God? Now, it could be success, it could be wealth, it could be reputation, it could be a lot of things. It could be, it could be a lot of good things. Children can become a false god. I've seen it all the time. It, we danced with that ourselves, that the children became the idol, and we just, we just had to have healthy, happy children and everything else in order to be happy, to be fulfilled. But anything that you think you need to have to have a life of happiness, either apart from or in addition to Jesus, has the potential to become a false god in your life. As I was processing this with staff, we had a wonderful uh, first staff meeting uh, this, this past week. I, I really enjoyed sitting down, meeting with everybody, and, and bounced the sermon off of them. And, and one of them said, you know, it's kind of like the what's your Jesus and? When you say, I just need Jesus and, and you have a blank there, what goes in your blank? What's your Jesus and? What's the thing that you need to have? And it might be subconscious. It, it might, maybe you don't have one, but maybe you do. And I would encourage you to wrestle with that question and ask God that question. Maybe ask a few people that you trust that know you really well. Is there anything that you see in my life that I need to have or feel like I need to have? Because even some good things that go in that blank can be dangerous. Can be dangerous. Now Jesus confronts the rich young slave's error in his response. And I, I love Mark's version of this. We're told in the narrative, Jesus looked at him and loved him. And then said, one thing you lack. And Jesus looks at you and he loves you. He delights in you. Do you realize that? He looks at you and he loves you. And love, as you know, will often be called upon to say the hard thing, to do the hard thing, to go beyond the surface level, to go beyond the news, weather, and sports, as I call it, and dive beneath the surface and, and call out something that may be needs to change. Jesus loved this young ruler, this young slave, way too much to be silent. And so in, in his response, he reveals that Christianity is not something you add, it's not something you do. Of course, you do things differently because of it, and you are transformed through it. But as my old pastor used to say, Jesus is either Lord of all, or he isn't Lord at all. And I remember hearing that for the first time and realizing, whoa, Jesus is not Lord of all in my life. I was sitting in Highland Park Community Church in Casper, Wyoming, and John Spear was the senior pastor of that church. And, and after a few months of attending there, he dropped that truth bomb right in my lap, and I had to reconcile it. And I had to realize Jesus was not Lord of all in my life. And it was that phrase that God used to convict my heart and lead me to make an altar where I was seated that morning and to give my life to him. 
and to say, Jesus, I've wanted a Savior, but I'm not sure I wanted a Lord. Will you be Lord of all? And that began a process. I wish I could tell you, it was just, boom, I was totally transformed from day one, and after that, I was good to go for life. It's, it's been a process. It's still a process. But I'm getting a little closer to Jesus every single day. And I'm surrendering a little more to him every single day. And he's becoming Lord of all in my life. And it's a wonderful thing. And I'm so glad that I heard that and that I received that and I responded to that. I'm kind of a nerd, you'll find out, um, the longer we get to, to share together. And, and I used to really love math. And so I was thinking about what's the equation here? What's, how could I represent this? You know, about 75% of people are somewhat analytical in the way that they think. And so I came up with this equation of redemption. The equation of redemption is sort of counterintuitive. The equation of redemption is Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Because Jesus is everything we need. In fact, we also need to keep in mind that Jesus plus anything equals nothing. Now that math doesn't compute in the world, but it computes in the kingdom. And I think you understand what, what we see in the text here. That this one thing that the guy had to have, the rich young ruler had to have, in addition to Jesus, was the one thing he could not add to the equation because it would always lead him astray. And there are things, perhaps, in our lives that God is saying, that's not a bad thing in and of itself. It's the love of it that carries you away from me. We get this idea sometimes that, that money is evil. And I've, I've even heard preachers preach on this passage with that idea in mind. And keep in mind, Paul said to Timothy, it's the love of money that is the root of all evil. Not that money is evil. Money is amoral. Okay, it, it doesn't have a morality. Now money, usually I've found it makes you more or less of what you already are. Money makes you more of what you already are. So you can be a rich jerk or you can be a poor jerk. Okay, money is not going to make you kind. I've not seen people that were arrogant and rude and nasty get a lot of money and become nicer. That's just not the way it works. But I have seen a lot of people who were kind and compassionate and generous without a lot of money suddenly have a lot of money and they become even kinder even more generous, even more compassionate. It's not money. Money's not the issue. It's whatever you put in that blank. It's the love of it over and above or even too close alongside Jesus that tends to lead us astray. So our big idea today is that following Jesus demands much more than you thought, but he offers more than you can imagine. The love of Jesus and following Jesus and making him first in our life, not just first among equals, but first in our life, central to our life. It demands more than we thought, but it offers more than we can imagine. It, it demanded more than the rich young slave thought it would. He wouldn't have asked the question if he'd have thought what the answer might be. Yet it offers so much more than he could imagine. And this story becomes a great example of the way that Jesus leveled the playing field for the whole world. You see, this was a, a man of position, a man of authority, a man of influence, a man of resources. And in the Old Testament, you have to understand that, that wealth and position were synonymous with God's blessing. So much so that if you were poor and didn't have, they would say perhaps you had some sin in your life. Read the book of Job and see how his friends question him over and over and over. What great sin did you do in order to lose God's blessing and to lose your wealth and to lose your position and your authority? 
And yet Jesus levels the playing field. And even today, we've gotten really good at drawing lines between people, right? We, we, we have the moral and the immoral, the good, the bad, in, out, acceptable, unacceptable. We do this racially. Around here, we call it East River, West River, perhaps. And they do the same thing in the West River. Okay, that's more where I grew up. And they say, oh, those East River people. And, and over here, they say, oh, those West River people. And we draw all these lines, and Jesus cuts through all of them. He says, there's no place for lines in my kingdom. God so loved the world, the whole world, that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him would not perish, but have eternal life. There's no us in them. There's only us. There's only us. And when we draw these lines, Jesus comes and cuts through them. He cuts through the lines. He says, you don't do it, you don't add it to your life, you don't add to it. He did it, and it's more than you can imagine. So my prayer for you is that you won't go away sad today. Don't go away sad. If the Spirit of God is convicting you in some way, it's because He loves you. It's because He sees something in you, because He has a vision for your life. And there may just be something that needs to go or needs to be knocked down a couple of notches to make sure that it doesn't interfere with your following Jesus. Don't trade the rich and satisfying life for, for lesser things. One of my favorite verses is John 10.10 10, where Jesus says, the thief comes to steal and kill and destroy, but I come that you might have life and have it to the fullest, have life and have it abundantly. Or as the New Living Translation says, I came that you would have a rich and satisfying life. And all this stuff, all the things that we could put into the blank there of Jesus and, they don't provide the rich and satisfying life. Only Jesus does. They provide illusions of it, but they don't bring it to us. And it's when we clear those things away and when we come to Jesus with hands open saying, take what you want to take, give what you want me to have, then we are now in relationship with Him, we can be with Him, we can grow with Him, and we can experience the rich and satisfying life that He died for us to have. He didn't come to take anything from us. He came for us to be able to surrender to Him respond in faith to what he has to give to us and then live that life with him. It'll cost more than you might think, but it offers more than you can imagine. Now, I was reminded this week that the, the Great Commission isn't to go and teach. That's a part of it. That's a small part of it. And you have come and been taught, and I have gone and taught, and, and, and we have done that, and it is, it is a good part of the equation. But if you remember the Great Commission, it's to go, and it really means as you go, so don't just go once, but as you go, wherever you go, when you go, when you go, make disciples. Go. Make disciples. And teach them to obey. Obedience is the focus of the teaching. So if I'm teaching you and it's not inspiring you to be more obedient to Jesus, then we're failing here. So I'll challenge you often. And I'll challenge you to obey Jesus in a new way each week. Because Jesus knew something. And He said it, one of His last things that He said to His disciples, if you love Me, you will keep My commandments. Jesus knew something when He said that. He knew that the more we kept his commandments, 
the more we would love him. That's the way the commandments are set up to work. The first blessing of obedience is obedience itself. And the more we obey, the more we love Jesus. And the more we love Jesus, the more we obey. And he wanted us to just keep moving upward in in new levels, new heights of love, new heights of obedience. And the world around us sees that. They notice that. They ask about it. And they give us opportunity to make an invitation to invite them to that same rich and satisfying life. And so as we close this message, I invite you to, to pray. I invite you to to bow your head and to say to Jesus, just ask that prayer. Is there anything in my life that needs to be knocked down? Is there anything that needs to be surrendered? Or is there anything that I've, I've held a clenched fist on that I need to relax my grip? Would you bow with me as we pray? Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word. What a gift it is to us. We thank you for the way that you reveal yourself to us through your word and the way that you reveal your will for our lives to us through your word. We thank you for this passage. We pray that you will help us to apply this word to our hearts. Each of us individually and all of us corporately. We recognize, Lord, that following you demands perhaps more than we thought. But we look with confident hope and realize that it offers so much more than we can imagine. Help us, Holy Spirit, to respond in faith to the word that we have heard. Help us to be different tomorrow because we came to church today. Make us more like Jesus. We pray it in his name. Amen. We're going to transition into a time of, of communion, of the, of the Lord's Supper. And uh, if this is your first time here, we want you to know that we serve what we call an open communion at Linwood Church. That means you don't have to have your name on the roles of membership in the, in the office in order to participate in communion. We, we do ask, because Jesus asked, that as you do this, you would do it in remembrance of him. You don't need to be a member of Linwood Church, but you need to be a member of the body of Christ. You need to have accepted him as your Lord and Savior so that you can follow his instructions, which we read about from Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 where he writes to the church at Corinth, on the, the Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And Paul adds, Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. A man ought to examine himself before he eats the bread and drinks of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment on himself. So we invite you to come And we ask, as Paul asked, as Jesus instructed, that you would be in fellowship with the Lord and fellowship with each other. Now, we'll ask you to come down these aisles, this aisle here and this aisle here. You can come down this side, come across, and then return in this aisle. Receive the elements, take them back, and hold them until all have been served. 
And then I'll come back and I'll lead us through the partaking of the elements. If you're coming down from these two sections, uh, come down through here, uh, receive the elements, and then return to your seat. And in those moments as the song is sung and as you stand in line or you return to your seat, examine yourself. Ask God, is there anything that has come between me and you in the last, since the last time we did this? And if there is, there's forgiveness. Simply seek it. Repent. And you will find that John 1.9, 1 John 1.9 is still true. He is faithful and just. He will cleanse you from all unrighteousness. That is what we celebrate today. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you that you loved us and still love us with an everlasting love and that you have provided for our redemption. We thank you for your Son who died to save us and for your Spirit who lives within us and invites us now to draw near to you. We ask you to guide us as we fix our minds and hearts upon the suffering of our Lord. Help us to remember the cost of our salvation. Help us to have rich fellowship with you and with each other. And Lord, we ask you to consecrate the bread and the cup which are here prepared that as we partake of them, we may receive the spiritual benefits of Christ's broken body and shed blood on our behalf. It is in the strong, powerful, beautiful name of Jesus that we pray. Amen.